0: Transparency Project on the Inside Lens Network. We have programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case or suggest a topic for a future show, please email denny at dennisngriffin.biz, and you can also like us on Facebook at the Transparency Project. This is Delilah Jones of Imagine Publicity. Our esteemed host, Dennis Griffin, has had other obligations this morning, so you're stuck with me. <laughs> um, I will be wearing the host hat, and I I just know we have a really great show today for you. And let's just get right into it, because there's so much information to cover with with. Our guest, Dr. Ellen Graytak of Parabon, Parabon Nano Labs and Parabon Snapshot. So, Dr. Graytak, welcome to the show. And could you provide us with a brief background of yourself? I know you have a pedigree that is a mile long, and um, and some background on Parabon as well. How this all came together? Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so I'm Dr. Ellen Graytak. I have a PhD in genetics from Harvard, and uh, since that time, I was fortunate enough to find a really amazing application for that research that I had done, which was to turn it to forensics and try to figure out, is there new information that we could learn to help an investigation just based on DNA that's either found at a crime scene or recovered from unidentified remains? And so we've been working to try to apply that in in lots of different areas. The main one that we'll probably be talking about today is called Snapshot. So Parabon is a high-performance computing company. Uh, When I started, I was the only biologist here. All the rest of the people were computer scientists, and they wanted to see if it was possible to predict what someone looked like just from a DNA sample. And they brought me on to if we could. And so what we've done is over about four years, we did a lot of research. Uh, We discovered parts of the DNA that code for different aspects of physical appearance. So we found genes that determine whether you have blue eyes or brown eyes, or whether you have a lot of freckles or no freckles, or even whether you have a wide face or a long face or a pointy face. And we've been able to put all of that together into what we call Snapshot, which is a DNA phenotyping system that can read a DNA sample and make predictions about that person. And the great application of this is for forensics. So traditional DNA forensics treats DNA like a fingerprint. You can use it to match a crime scene sample to a database or a suspect who's already been identified. And it's great for that. If, you, if it gets a match in one of those places, You know, you're all set. But if it doesn't get a match, the question was, isn't there anything else this DNA could tell us? There's so much information about a person in DNA. And so what we've done is, now that we have Snapshot available to law enforcement, they can come to us with cases where they need some information. Maybe they don't have a witness and need to learn some information about who they are and are not looking for. And we can really provide them a genetic witness because we're looking at the blueprints of that person in the DNA and making a prediction, which the investigators can then use to try to figure out, um, you know, who, who should be the top priority on their suspect list and who can they really eliminate.
0: And it's, you know, this is relatively new technology, so it's not going to be found in every law enforcement agency in the country. And I think it's something that I hope each and every agency out there takes a look at and and finds the possibilities that are available. You know, I, as we were speaking about on off the air, um, one of one of the people that I've known for years, um, Maggie Zingman, her daughter Brittany Phillips was murdered in Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in two thousand and four, and I've interviewed her several times about it. But she's done. You know, this just is is one of the things that a family member will do to find the answers that they need. And she has done a caravan to catch a killer, which she has traveled all over the country several, several times with her car wrapped with information. Well, now, because of what you've done for her, she has a picture that is a possible suspect in the case on the DNA found at the crime scene. And this just opens up so many more doors, you know, not just for her, but, you know, for anyone else out there. Now, tell me, what is the difference between, you know, just a, a composite picture to what you do in order to, let's say, exclude a suspect
1: you I mean versus uh, a composite drawn from a witness description? Correct. Uh, so they're, they're very similar. Uh, the, the main difference is that we're providing objective information. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, a bias in what the person saw or what they remember. Uh, but, you know, it really depends. Uh, if a case has a great witness and, and the police are confident that that person is absolutely the perpetrator, then, you know, they don't need snapshot. But what we can do is, first of all, that DNA was at the crime scene. So you can be confident that this is someone who who was there as opposed to someone who was nearby. And second of all, we are providing, again, objective information uh, based on just that DNA. So we're providing information about the, the eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, ancestry, and face shape of that person, which... You know, if there isn't a witness or someone didn't get a good look, this can really help fill out that information. And in some cases, there is a witness who maybe only saw the person from the back or saw them from afar. And uh, we actually have a trained forensic artist on staff who can combine the information we produce with those witness statements uh, because we only have the DNA. We don't know, know. We predict what color that person's hair is, but we can't predict how they wore their hair, for example. So if someone saw this person had a curly ponytail, well, we certainly couldn't know that just from the DNA, and that could be a, an important detail. So it is important to remember that, you know, we're not producing a photograph of a person because we only have access to the DNA. There's a lot of information about how someone looks that's not written in their DNA. So I mentioned how they wear their hair if they choose to have a beard or not, if they have tattoos or scars, and then also how old they are. That's a really tough one. Unfortunately, uh, the the DNA that we're looking at, which is the DNA sequence, doesn't change throughout your life. So uh, that DNA will be the same if that person was 15 or if they were 45. And so what we do is when we produce a composite, by default, it's always as a young adult. So someone who has a mature face, but not yet affected by age and also at a normal body weight. Uh, But we can, uh, again, our forensic artist can step in there. And if the case is 20 years old, for example, he can add 20 years to that composite to show what that person uh, would look like now.
0: That's interesting. And it's my understanding that not only do you produce the image, but there's also a a complete report that goes along with this, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. So for each trait that we predict, so for eye color, for example, we're predicting, you know, what is the probability that this person has blue versus green versus hazel, brown, or black eyes? And then we, for each statement that we make, we have a confidence statement, And that confidence is based on predictions that we've made on thousands of people whose appearance we know. So we know that, you know, for example, 95% of the time when we get a prediction like this, the person really did have blue eyes. So that would give us very high confidence that this person has blue eyes. And so we always take the investigators through that report to say, you know, here are the traits that we've predicted that are really high confidence and, and how would you use this. Well, if it's really high confidence that the person has blue eyes, then you would take people with blue eyes, move them to the top of your suspect list. Everybody else, you would not eliminate them. It's never impossible that that person actually has dark eyes. It's just much less likely. So it's just the dark-eyed people you would move to the bottom and say, I'm pursuing this investigation. Those are not the people I'm going to start investing my resources in. I'm going to start investigating the blue eyed people. And as you use each trait to get a smaller and smaller subset of people who are still included at the top of the suspect list, uh, it makes an investigation a lot more tractable. You can go from a huge suspect list with no way to differentiate among who you should start looking at. And now you've got a much smaller subset. And that's why we talk about it as making investigations more efficient. We don't talk about it as this is going to solve your case by telling you the only person who did it uh, because we're not producing information that is individually identifiable. There might be several people on the suspect list who have blue eyes, but the important thing is to use our information in conjunction with other investigative information to really narrow down and find sort of the overlap, the, the people who you know, are associated with the case, but also match This prediction and then again especially excluding people so people who really don't match that prediction you can move them to the bottom of your list and say i don't need to start putting my man hours into talking to those people i can focus and so through that we've we've helped solve quite a number of cases in all of those cases uh it was using our information in conjunction with other things it's not going to you know, point out the only person in the world who
0: could have matched that DNA. Right. Now, the, going back to the DNA sample, um, how much DNA or what what size of a sample do you need? and And can it also be done on old, you know, old DNA? And one other thing before I before you get into this, you don't do the DNA extraction, isn't that correct?
1: That is correct. So we are purely computational. Uh, our process really starts at the point that the DNA has already been extracted, but we do work with uh, with labs to to coordinate that. so if if a case already has extracted DNA, then we will coordinate having it sent to our lab who will do the DNA analysis that we need and then send us the data. But if it's a DNA um, evidence that hasn't been extracted, we can also coordinate that, um, you know, if the state lab or whoever has the evidence doesn't have time to do the extraction, uh, we can arrange with, you know, a private lab to do that as well.
0: Maybe you can just walk us through the process like if if I'm a law enforcement agency and I would like to use your services am i do I like get a subscription and and I can work all <laughs> of my cases through you, or is it only done by a you know a case by case process
1: uh it depends on the agency, so most agencies do want to try one case with us, but then we do offer you know, batch discounts that if you buy, um, you know, five cases and pay a, ahead of time, you can get a, a discount. Uh, so, so some, some agencies do, do that, and then sort of as cases come in, they, they uh, draw down against that. Uh, but the, the way it works is, an, is uh, an investigator comes to us and says, I have a case that I could use this kind of information on. There's no hit in the database, and I've got a ton of suspects, Uh, And I need a place to start. Uh, And so the first thing we do is we have them put us in touch with their forensic analyst at the lab that actually has the DNA. And we work with them to learn about the sample. Because first we need to make sure that there is enough DNA. So you asked about that. So we need just one nanogram of DNA, which is a very small amount. Um, You know, that would be, uh, you know, one swab, no problem. Uh, Drinking from a bottle of water and swabbing the rim, you would get a good 20, 25 nanograms of DNA. So there, a lot of cases, most of the cases we work on, uh, do have enough DNA. But we also need to know how it was stored. So the older a sample is, the more difficult it can be uh, because, uh,
0: you know, even,
1: even DNA analysis wasn't even available for forensics as of, you know, 30 years ago, and so there wasn't a thought that we need to preserve this evidence so that the DNA will be in good condition because that wasn't even an option back then. Uh, So, it it does really vary. So, we'll ask about, you know, how is this evidence stored, um, what temperature, things like that, but we've worked cases as old as 45 years old, and I'm sure you've heard about them doing Neanderthal genome and things like that. I mean, there there are lots of techniques available now to work with older DNA, but it just gets harder the more time has passed. But we regularly work with cases that are decades old. So once we've established that the DNA sample is of sufficient quality, another part of that is also making sure that it is from a single person. We do work with mixed samples as well Uh, with two person mixtures, but we need to know who the second contributor is. Uh, So we work with a lot of uh, sexual assault cases, for example, where the DNA is mixed between the perpetrator and the victim, and they usually have a single source sample from the victim as well, so we can work with those types of samples. So at that point, uh, we have the DNA sent to a lab. So unfortunately, we can't work with the same kind of DNA data that is used for CODIS or for database comparisons. We need to do a separate analysis, which is why we need the DNA itself. We can't just use that CODIS profile. Uh, so we need to have a separate analysis done, and then the DNA is sent, or the data is sent to us. We do our analysis and then brief the investigators.
0: is there ever any problem with, like, chain of custody of that DNA sample? Wouldn't, would that have to be established as well?
1: So the labs that we work with all have you know, the types of certifications that show that they have processes in place to make sure that the sample that comes in is the sample that uh, goes back out. And so uh, we haven't really had problems with that. Uh, for the most part, we work with samples where we ask the forensics lab, uh, you know, the state lab, whoever has the sample to send us only as much DNA as we need, so then we use it all up and there's no concern that what's coming back to them was not that original sample. But if they don't want to do that, we do have forensics labs um, standing by who can, who can do that for us. And again, have procedures in place to ensure that um, chain of custody is maintained. And we here are only computational. So we never touch the evidence, never see the DNA. We're only looking at data.
0: Okay. Well, I do have a question from one of our listeners um, I'm going to read it to you because I totally don't understand it, but the, <laughs> her question is, a YSTR profile was obtained from what was described as a degraded semen sample from 1978. Can this profile be used in Parabon's testing? Does the age or level of degradation have any impact on the profile that could be obtained using the Y? STR profile?
1: Uh, that's a great question. So, a YSTR profile itself would not be usable for our work, but that might indicate that there is other DNA still available. If that sample, you know, if they use some of it to do the YSTRs and there's some still frozen, uh, then we could work with that. Uh, it is true that the age, like I mentioned, and degradation can have an effect. However, like I say, we worked um, with cases that are up to 45 years old and we'd like to get even older. So this would be a little older than that. Um, so, so I do think that that would be possible as long as there's DNA left and it is of sufficient quantity. And so what we would do is we basically have the forensics lab fill out a form with all of that information and we evaluate, do we think this is going to work? Because we don't want to accept a sample or we don't think there's a high probability
0: of success. Right. And the the cost of all of this, this is family members can't just say, here's a check and here's a DNA sample from my investigator." <laughs> can you do this? Am I right? It's you're only working through the investigative agency. So they would have to, um, they would have to maybe, could they fund it if they wanted this done in their case?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do have to work with the investigator because we need to know that they are, that there is proper permission to actually use that sample for this purpose. Um, But we have had, a wide variety of funding used uh, to pay for this. Uh, I mean, it usually comes from the investigating agency, but sometimes it comes from the DA or a, a team of agencies will work together. Uh, and we have had even, you know, GoFundMe campaigns and things like that to uh, to raise money for this kind of analysis.
0: Okay. Why don't you explain the ancestry kinship portion of the snapshot? I think that's quite interesting. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's not like what Ancestor.com is doing where you, you know, you send a swab in and get your your ancestors. Um, this is something <laughs> totally different, correct?
1: Uh, well, there are similarities and differences. Uh, so first of all, there is ancestry which is part of our standard snapshot analysis so that is saying you know where in the world do this person's ancestors come from so if this is a um, you know a white, You know, a person who considers themselves white or Caucasian in the US, and their ancestors probably come from Northern Europe, but you know, the US is very diverse. And so we see a very wide variety of people uh, coming through, well, of DNA samples coming through, uh, including people with um, mixed ancestry and and things like that. And so we, we do report that information back. Uh, both at sort of a global scale, you know, Europe versus Asia versus Africa, and also at a regional scale, which would be Northern Europe versus Southern versus Eastern, et cetera. Uh, But then we have a separate service that we call Snapshot Kinship. And that is, uh, it's a separate service because we need multiple samples for that. It's not just analyzing a single sample and predicting the appearance. It's actually analyzing two or more samples to determine how closely related they are. So it's in in terms of the actual analysis, all that different from what ancestry DNA is doing. I mean we we have our own method, but it's not all that different. Uh, but what we're doing is we're using forensic samples. That's a big part of it. You know we're using just you know, one nanogram of DNA obtained from a crime scene, and then comparing, and in some cases, uh you know the investigators think that the perpetrator might be related to the victim for example and so we could do a kinship analysis to determine okay yes the perpetrator was a, a fourth degree relative you know a first cousin once removed or something like that of of this victim and again that's not going to point to a single person but it definitely gives the police a place to look it it's a new lead that they can follow up on or alternatively it'll say no, these actually are not related, that's not a lead to follow up on. And so, uh, you know, the other option is if, if unidentified remains are found, uh, often there are not first-degree relatives to compare against. So standard forensic uh, DNA analysis for kinship, uh, if you're looking just at STRs, that can really only do parent-child, maybe siblings. Uh, You can use the Y chromosome or the mitochondrial DNA to do uh, more distant relatives, but only for specific relative types. So the Y chromosome is only present in males, and it will only match males who are from a direct male line. So your sister's son will not have the same Y chromosome as you, even though those are pretty close relatives. And the mitochondrial DNA, same thing. Your brother's child will not have the same mitochondria as you. And if you're a male, even your child won't. So it it really limits the comparisons that you can do. But we're looking at um, what we call autosomal, and we're looking at the 22 chromosomes that are not the X or the Y and that are not the mitochondrial DNA. And we're looking at SNPs, or single nucleotide polymorphisms. So these are a, a different type of DNA change than an STR. So an STR is a short tandem repeat, that's what they use for a CODIS profile. It's saying at this point in the DNA, how many times does this piece of DNA repeat? It could be 12, 13, 14, and that number is what goes into CODIS, that that person has 12 repeats, for example. What we're looking at is actual changes in the DNA sequence at a particular site. So it's not an expansion, it's this site that used to be an A has changed to a G and uh, we're using about a million of those across the DNA. So we have lots and lots of information that allows us to pretty precisely tell how closely related two people are.
0: And what about unidentified remains? Now how do Mm -hmm. those cases come to you? Um, Would they also come from a law enforcement agency or A lot of times, you know, there's not a family involved in 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 an unidentified remains case. So, how does? What's the process for something like that?
1: Yeah, those are tough because there are so many of them, and like you say, if there isn't a family, um, you know, pushing for uh, work to be done, sometimes they're not always the top priority uh, versus you know a, a crime that just happened. And so they do go the same way in that an investigating agency would come to us say we have these remains can you help us so you know these are always they've always already been put into Namis which is the you know missing and unidentified person system uh, that would allow them the investigators to search for um, people who have been reporting missing that might match this description. Uh, But the challenge with remains is you often don't know that person's coloration. You don't know whether they had blue eyes or brown eyes or blonde hair or brown hair. Uh, And that's a lot of the information that goes into a missing persons report. So based on remains, if you have a skull, you can do a facial reconstruction, but those typically have to be black and white uh, because there's no information about that person's eye color or their hair color or the skin color, you can infer the ancestry to some extent at sort of a continental level. Is this person more likely to be European versus African versus Asian? But it's hard to get more specific than that. And if someone is of mixed ancestry, it can be very difficult to determine. Uh, So first of all, in those situations, we can analyze DNA from those remains. Bone is more difficult than other sample types. Uh, the DNA does tend to be more degraded, but we have been successful on a number of those cases. And then we can basically combine it with the facial reconstruction from the skull to tell them, you know, not only are you looking for someone with this face shape, but with these descriptors of their pigmentation. Uh, and we've been working with the, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children on that to help them um, basically colorize their, their reconstructions Uh, to give them that extra information. And then what we also find is there are lots and lots of unidentified remains cases where there is no skull. And then there's very little to go on in order to determine uh, what that person looked like when they were alive. And so a great example of that was a case we worked on in Texas, and this was a torso that had been found in I believe 1983. So this had been unidentified for over 30 years and based on the skin color, uh, they had believed that this was a Caucasian female. We analyzed the DNA and found that she was actually Chinese. And so, you know, for 35-ish years, um, you know, they thought that they had this missing person who was Caucasian. And, you know, it had been someone completely different. They have not been able to identify her, but you can imagine how difficult it would be to figure out who that person was when you have so little to go on. And in so many of these cases, these are people who met a violent end, but where do you start an investigation? It's always who knew the victim? Well, if you don't even know who the victim is, how do you start investigating that case? It's just really, really difficult. And so what we found is the cases that we've worked on where we've helped them identify uh, that person, that victim, basically immediately, as soon as they were able to identify the victim, there was a very obvious perpetrator, you know, uh, a relative or a boyfriend or, you know, someone who had been close to the victim but had never been caught for this crime because it was never known that that victim was dead. And so now we've been able to, you know, basically solving two cases, who was that person and who killed them. Uh, So we've been working on a lot of those cases recently. Um, I think people don't think about that application as much. You know, they think about DNA phenotyping, okay, now we can learn what our suspect looks like. But there's also that other side of, of who was our victim.
0: Right. It's Yeah, that that would definitely be the most important part in a case like that. Are there some other cases that you can talk about that um, that you were able to lead to a resolution through the investigation?
1: Uh, yeah, we've had a, quite a number of those at this point. Uh, I know when we last talked, it was a much smaller number, but we've seen quite an acceleration in that uh, in the last year or so. Uh, The case that uh, really brought it home the most for me was a case from Massachusetts. This was from 25 years ago. This was a a 1992 murder of this young woman. It was a very well-known case in the area. It was this beautiful young woman who was visiting her family, went out for a jog and, and never came back. And so for 25 years, her family has been wondering what happened to her. And, uh, you know, the, over the years, the detectives had talked to so many people. I mean, they've, they've never given up hope on this investigation, but they just never had a good enough lead to solve it. And so they decided to do DNA phenotyping. And so we gave them a prediction of this southern european man with you know dark hair or light brown eyes very downturned nose and also age progressed that for the 25 years that had passed and what they did was they went back through their investigations everybody they had talked to over 25 years and a lot of those people they've excluded through dna so that's a really important thing about these cases is they always have DNA. So they always have a DNA profile uh, against which they can compare anyone to confirm or refute the fact that that is the actual person instead of someone who happens to match our prediction. So it's, you know, this is not going to lead to wrongful convictions because it's always going to be verified through DNA at the end. So what they did was go through all the people they had ever talked to who they had not excluded through DNA people they hadn't been able to get a DNA sample from or who really hadn't been sufficiently connected to justify getting a DNA sample but who you know were mentioned sort of in the case files. And they went back through and there were only a few guys who matched that description and also who had not been excluded through DNA. I think it was only about four or five guys. And so they just decided let's go see if we can get DNA from these guys. And uh, when they went to try and talk to one of them, he fled. And they were eventually able to track him down and test his DNA and found that it did match. And so after 25 years, they were able to tell his family, we know who did this, and he is never going to be able to do it again.
0: Oh, that's, that's a fabulous story. It really is. And it, it really gives a lot of hope to um, a lot of other families out there who are going through a similar situation. Um, what about in the case of wrongful convictions? And wor- do you do any work like with the Innocence Project or do, um, do those cases ever come to you?
1: So they haven't because in the Innocence Project, typically what they're doing is comparing the DNA uh, against crime scene DNA. So they can just use the traditional matching to see whether it matches or not. Where we could come in would be sort of after that, like after a conviction has been overturned because it was found not to match. Then we could look at the DNA and say, okay, well, what is the description of the person that you're looking for? So it would basically be for that new investigation. You know, okay, it turns out the person we had didn't do it. Well, that person is still out there. So can we learn anything to to get this investigation restarted? And that's how we see a lot of people using this technology is that, um, you know, they've got a cold case that they've exhausted all the leads and they need a new place to start. Just some information that, you know, can get it kickstarted, can get the, uh, the public interested in the case again, uh, et cetera. And, And of course those cases are going to be very difficult to solve. Those older cases You know, even with great information, you know, that person could have died or moved away, but it's always going to give them information they didn't have before and make that investigation more possible than it was.
0: Yeah, I think that is a very important aspect of it, because we hear, you know, there's been a lot of of exonerations in the past few years, which is, is outstanding, um You know, hopefully we can clean that system up, but then again, you don't hear about well what really did happen in this crime. We know who didn't do it, and we've we've been able to free that person, but you don't hear about who actually did that crime um That could be a whole a whole other end for your business <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> I'm just, you know, your your website fascinates me, and I would urge everybody to go to Parabon P A R A B O N dot com, and go to the Parabon Snapshot section of it and look at the comparisons, the work that you've done, and I mean, it's just amazing um, how this how this works. Um, Dr. Greytek, what what else do you, would you like our listeners to know about? what you do and how it can impact their case.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, snapshot isn't going to be for every case. There isn't always going to be DNA. It isn't always going to be, you know, something that the investigators need. But what we found is that in the cases that do use it, it's always incredibly helpful. It may not lead to a solve, but it is always going to make that investigation Uh, Go further than it could have before. And of course, we're still hoping that those cases will eventually get solved. And you'd be amazed at the number of cases that we work on where, you know, the investigators come to us like, well, we're not really sure we need this. We think we have a pretty good description of this person, uh, but, you know, we'd like to confirm it. And we give them back a report that is completely different from who they thought they were looking for. And as soon as they pivot, start looking in this other direction, you know, they, they've found the person in, in several of these cases. Uh, and so you know, we do think that even if it doesn't seem like it's needed, uh, it, it can always really help. Uh, the, uh, the, of course, it's also great if we can confirm their information and, and say, okay, you're going down the right path, keep going. You know, just having that confidence that you're looking in the right direction I think can be really helpful. Uh, and so, yeah, I think our, our website is, is a great place to start. Uh, if you go just go to snapshot.parabon.com, you can get right there. And we have lots of examples of the cases that we've worked on and those that we've helped solve. I really think that's the, the best uh, in evidence for how well it works, because of course, we couldn't have known anything about those people before we made that prediction. You know, the investigators didn't know who that person was. The only person who knew that was them and And now we were able to give investigators that information which led to them finding that perpetrator.
0: Well, do you go out and speak to law enforcement agencies or uh maybe train them in this technology so they have a better understanding about it?
1: Oh yes, absolutely. We go to lots and lots of state. Uh, and national and international uh, homicide investigator conferences are, are sort of a, a big one that we go to, but we also go to other types of investigator conferences to make sure that people are aware that this technology is available if they want it. There's still, you know, even within an agency where we might have worked five cases we'll get an inquiry from another detective saying, I just learned about this, you know, at a conference. Can you tell me about it? And say, well, you know, the guy next door to you has, has done it on his case. Um, and so we're, we're finding that there's, just, there's still a lot of people out there who don't know about it. And so we do go out and try to get the word out. And then also do training. So our training basically consists of a, an example case where we say, okay, we've got these DNA samples. Here are the predictions that you get. And then here are, you know, 24 suspects, prioritize them. So we try to emphasize, don't pick the one person that you're going to focus on, you know, pick the ones that you would put at the top and people you would put at the bottom to emphasize, you know, this is not pointing to you to a single person. It's pointing you to a small subset of people, but, you know, now you've eliminated Twenty one out of your twenty four people, and you only need to focus on three, for example. Um, So we do uh, do those kinds of trainings as well.
0: So I'm a little a little town out in rural South Carolina, and I would like to use your services on a case that I'm working on. Give me an idea of how much is it going to cost my agency. And with all the budget cuts that we've had lately, what type of funding sources might be available to me?
1: Uh, So the standard charge is $3,600 to analyze one sample. So that includes the DNA analysis and our analysis and the briefing. And what we find is that a lot of agencies have access to JAG funding, which is funding to help investigations and that funding can be used for Snapshot. Um, so it's basically a matter of inquiring with your agency that to find out whether that funding has been allocated to you and how you can access it. Uh, we also have been approved to work with cold case grants from the National Institutes of Justice. They, uh, so they, every other year, they have uh, cold case grants that, um, that agencies can apply for saying we have this cold case, we need funding to continue the investigation on it. Uh, And we, so snapshot is an approved use of those funds. Um, So those are two big ones.
0: And once again, if it's a family member who wants, who's advocating their case and maybe, you know, maybe they're not getting their investigator to jump off the mark fast enough, um, they could offer funding to that agency, correct?
1: Sure, I mean that would have to be arranged with the agency right. uh but yes if they if they allow that, then that would absolutely be another
0: way to go, right, right. You wouldn't have anything to do with it but anyway i'm i'm this is just such a fascinating subject, and I hate that our our time is up, <laughs> mm, but um, move so by. I know. I really look forward to more conversations with you in the future and I hope you know that we will be in touch for some other projects. So um this brings us to a close. Are there any parting comments that you would like to make for our audience? Um, just
1: that, you know I hope that you're able to find resolution and that you know if we can help you that would be wonderful and if someone else can help you that's that's great too and I hope that everything works out for the best and thank you for having me thank you for listening uh, hope you found this informative
0: absolutely absolutely and and please please go to the website parabon p a r a b o n dot com and go to the snapshot section of it just to see some of the samples and again it's just totally mind blowing how how close it does come So, And I really feel, I believe wholeheartedly that this, this is helping in a lot of cases. So get the word out there so that more jurisdictions will be able to use this tool and solve these cases. So once again, we come to a close of another episode of the Transparency Project. Look us up on Facebook at the Transparency Project and stay safe out there until next time. Be kind to each other.